Hi everybody. Just a quick heads up that we had some audio issues this week, so if you notice the levels fluctuating a little bit, that's what's going on. We promise to do better next time. Zool is back. Does anyone care? More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. The bizarre true story of the Commodore smartphone. Reanimating the corpse of Zool. A classic arcade opens in Bristol. And Mr. For the Masses, Not the Classes. All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Now, John, before we get into our first story, a couple of follow-ups from older stories uh, on recent shows. You may remember that um, we saw games pulled from GOG or good old, good old games recently, and uh, we didn't really know why. They were EA games. Syndicate Syndicate Wars and Ultima Underworld disappeared from the service. And, um, well, thanks to user OKFish1962, they've informed us that the games have now reappeared with no explanation. So we don't really know why they <laughs> went. We don't know why they've come back. We don't know what the reason is for the U-turn but there they are so they're back on there wonderful yeah i'm glad glad to hear they're back there and in ludicrous auction news a sealed boxed copy of super mario brothers has now sold for two million dollars <laughs> hmm. absolutely crazy what were we at last time i think it was one and a half million was the last one one and a half yeah so we're up to two million now apparently this is a rare cardboard hang tag version of the box um and it sets a new video game record and thank you to pajaco 6502 for informing us of that i would write a story about it this week but it'll only be superseded next week the way things are going <laughs> three million dollars well, next week where is the ceiling who who knows who knows so yeah once 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 we start to see the prices dip back down again maybe we'll bring it back up we'll say we've reached the top of the mountain neil if there's one thing that's true these days it's that brands never really die at least retro technology brands. Uh, you've got Polaroid, Atari, Radio Shack. All of these formerly multinational innovative companies have been turned into, well, something lesser, if I'm being charitable. Uh, perhaps the most interesting and tragic of these corporate takeovers is the tale of our beloved Commodore. Uh, Neil, do you have any idea who owns Commodore right now? Uh, that's the that's the question, isn't it? Um, I want to say something like individual computing, but I, I have no idea if I'm right or if they only own part of it. Uh, it seems like somebody owns the ROMs, somebody owns the, the, the chicken lips. Um, no <laughs> idea. And uh, I like that you mentioned Polaroid, because of all the companies, Polaroid have absolutely no right to exist anymore based on the technology that they were founded on. <laughs> well, how are they still a brand? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a miracle. Um, I don't know who wants to buy, you know, a Polaroid branded iPad stylus, but I've seen them. I've seen them. They're out I've there. I've got a Polaroid but... branded Bluetooth speaker. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> it's like what what are we doing here what are we doing but you know getting back to commodore it's it's not an easy question because like you said between the hardware the software the branding rights uh not to mention the global nature of the company and everybody you know owning different rights in different companies a, a whole parade of corporations and in some cases i use the word corporations uh very loosely uh claim various parts of this formerly great computing empire founded by jack Tramell. um since commodore itself is a 
a common noun denoting naval rank. Maybe it's a bit easier to skirt the naming rights mm. than something specific. I don't know. But you might be aware of several Commodore-branded pieces of tech that have graced the Internet in the past 20 years or so. Uh, you had a line of Commodore-branded gaming PCs in the mid-2000s. Do you remember that, Neil? I do, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got very excited when I heard about them and then realized what they were. <laughs> Just a badge. Just a badge on a case. You've got the, the newly released, of course, the C64, the mini console, the Maxi with the full computer uh, keyboard and all that stuff. Um, John, and... John, John, do you want some? do you want some breaking news? Oh, yes. Yeah, on this subject, I had an email this morning uh, inviting me to perhaps review, if I'm interested, the new Mini Amiga oh, the, well. from, from the same people who did the Mini C64. And it's looking like a January release date that they're, that they're aiming for. January that sounds like a, so. a bit of breaking news worthy of its own story in a future episode. Look forward to that. <laughs> it does. And it sounds like licensing hell. Yes. How they've got around this. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be interesting to dig deeper into that. Um, now, thanks to a tip from our subreddit user, his name is is uh, Oz Retrocomp. Uh, he tells us about a Commodore cell phone. That's right, Neil. A Commodore, oh, I'm sorry, mobile phone, as you call <laughs> mobile, them. Mobile, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, Neil, when you're in the market for a new smartphone, a new handset, what kind of features are important to you? Oh, you're really asking the wrong man here, John. My uh, Nokia 8110 4G, uh, <laughs> it does everything I need. It does phone calls, it does text messages. It does phone calls, everything I need. <laughs> <laughs> but what about a home button replaced with a Commodore logo? Where does, where does that what rank? What is a home button? <laughs> what is a home button? <laughs> well, surprisingly, Neil, uh, even though you, your, your phone may be not as feature-rich as some, you're not alone in that not blowing you away. Uh, even though the Commodore phone was released in 2015, uh, there isn't much information on the internet about it uh, until now, that is. Uh, YouTuber and blogger Nostalgia Nerd, our friend, has taken a deep dive in the, into the history of the Commodore mobile phone, and uh, what an interesting tale it is. I'll spare you all the details, but Essentially, the phone's existence hinged on that, that logo that we were just talking about, the, the chicken head Commodore logo. Uh, it was apparently released from trademark after the company was dissolved in 1994. And uh, some crafty Italians bent on capitalizing on using that logo slapped on a generic Android device to market to people like you and me who uh, have, shall we say, a certain passion for the Commodore brand. Now, Neil, this begs the question, does this stuff work for you? Are, are you apt to buy a new gadget on the basis of just a, a cool retro branding alone? I mean, I'd buy a case to put my phone in that might have the logo on, but I don't know that I'd go as far as buying the whole phone mm -hmm. just because of a logo. Um, you know, when, when a new phone comes out, or for that matter, a new movie or a new album or anything like that, if everyone gets hyped up about it, I'm the kind of person that recoils uh, and I, I kind of let the hype pass. And I get around to it eventually in my own time. And usually it's been hyped for a good reason. And when I get around to watching the movie or using the phone or the bit of tech, I say, yeah, this is great. Uh, there's a reason why this was hyped. But I'm not, I'm not the right person to jump on a bandwagon, especially if it's just based on a logo alone. I'm certainly not what you call an early adopter um, or a risk taker mm -hmm. when it comes to new devices. Um, and it's partly that anti-hype train attitude, I think, 
that comes because I like to use technology to enhance my life. Um, what? I hate nothing more than... <laughs> I know, I know. Crazy, crazy idea. Um, I, I, you know, I, I hate devices that bombard me with information, uh, new information that there's no reason why that information can't wait till the end of the day and be batch processed, if you like. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't need my emails constantly streaming to me all day. In the work I do, I can check them at the end of the day. I don't need a new device that's going to bombard me, which is part of the reason why I have this Nokia phone. It really helps me to keep a lid on all of that. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of mindset I'm in and the kind of thing I'm thinking about when I buy a new device. I'm certainly not going to buy a new thing just because it has an apple on it or because it has the chicken lips on it. Absolutely not, John. No. How about you? Um, you know, it, it kind of depends. Uh, I'm all about being constantly distracted from anything important that I have to do 100% of the time. So <laughs> give me give me all the doodads. But um, if, if there's a neat peripheral, like a keyboard that can give me all of the existing functionality of the, the boring Dell model that's right here in front of me, but if it's styled, say, with the colors and the general shape of like a, a CPC 464 keyboard, and if it's less than 50 bucks, I mean, I'm probably in. There's no reason for me not to have an Amstrad lookalike keyboard board that I'm using all the all the time. But um, if you're going to charge a premium for just a generic device with a logo stamped on it, that's essentially the same thing as something without the logo. That's that's definitely more of a tough sell. Um, I'm actually pretty interested to see if any of our interesters were among the few to actually receive the Commodore phone as it did go on sale and it did ship actual units to customers. Yeah, I seem to remember being at an expo and I think uh, Dave Pleasance was there, the former MD of Commodore UK, and I'm sure he was waving around a Commodore branded smartphone at the time. Hmm. So maybe they sent him one. Uh, maybe he bought one. I don't know. Uh, it may, I think it was. It must have been the same device. There can't be that many Commodore smartphones out there. Uh, but he was pretty chuffed with it at the time. Yeah, uh, well, if Mr. Pleasance or any of our uh, subreddit users out there are uh, are still using the phone or if you have one in a drawer somewhere, let us know in the comments. And, uh, of course, for the complete tale of the chicken head handset, make sure you check out the full video from Nostalgia Nerd in the show notes. John, we're on to Zool now. Here's my uh, slightly crushed boxed copy for those watching the video of this podcast. Um, I must sort that out. And if anyone's got any tips for restoring crushed boxes, I'm all ears because I've got lots that I need to work through. Um, it's a skill that I need to get on top of. Now, Zool, for those who don't know, was the 16-bit micro's response to the console mascot. Mario and Sonic, they were like money printing presses at the time. They could sell new games. They could sell new hardware by the lorry load. And, um, well, we wanted a slice of that pie. But for every successful mascot out there, there were hundreds of failed attempts that just didn't stick. But Zool is perhaps the one that came the closest. It initially showed up on the Amiga in 1992. And uh, funnily enough, it was bundled with the Amiga 1200, but it was uh, an OCS-ECS version. So it worked on an Amiga 500. And an AGA version wouldn't come till later. That actually took advantage of the Amiga 1200. Typical Commodore. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's the way it went. Crack delivery but, um, of products. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent exactly. But uh, it was also sold as a standalone game. And it was successful enough to warrant ports to the Atari ST, to the PC, to the Archimedes. And it would also go on to end up on consoles like the Game Boy, the Master System, the Game Gear, Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo. So it obviously did well enough for people to want to port. Now, I remember this, trying this game when it came out, John, and I was kind of underwhelmed. Um, 
I didn't think it was a bad game. It's not a bad game at all. There's a lot of enjoyment to be had out of it. But I remember seeing reviews that gave it 95, 96, even 97% in the magazines. So they really set the expectation high before I got my hands on it. And of course, it couldn't, it couldn't deliver to that standard. Um, it was colourful. It was fast. It wasn't Sonic fast, but it was fast. And it was fun, but it was just nowhere near the quality of a Mario or a Sonic game. Um, yeah, what, what are your memories of Zool? Uh, I, I don't really have any, to be honest with you. I Zool kind of flew under the radar. I know that it was ported to the consoles at the time. Uh, I never came across Zool until we started the Amigos podcast and, and we, we reviewed it. And uh, I will say that among sort of the parade of incredibly lame mascots for the Amiga, I'm looking at you guy from Magic Pockets, um, <laughs> the uh, Zool looks cool. I mean, he looks like a, a rad dude. Um, he's got just the, the right amount of 90s attitude. Uh, he, he looks kind of antish, although I guess he's not really an ant. He's the representative for an ant-like species, according to the docs. Um, but the, the problem with Zool is that you know by the time that we got to the 16-bit era of platformers uh the people that were making the japanese platforming games had a decade or more of experience in the field and uh you know the development team that made zool let's say they had slightly less experience uh in that particular genre so uh it's no great surprise that they were not able to uh to, to achieve the same heights as, uh, you know, Mario or Sonic or whatever. Um, the, the main problem that I have with Zool is just that it's it's so difficult. There are so many blind jumps that lead to spikes uh, that, that it just wasn't that much fun to play, even though it was very pretty. Like you said, it did move quickly. The speed is, is excellent. But, um, yeah, I... It's hard for me to get excited when I think about Zool, especially Zool in terms of a you know a, a newer game that's, that that may or may not be released again. Yeah, as a mascot, maybe it was the rebellious teenager in me at the time. I just felt like it was trying too hard. Mm, yeah, you know, Sonic felt effortless. Mario was a plumber. If if you tried to come up with a new console mascot in 1992, you wouldn't come up with a mustachioed plumber. Sure. Um, but he just evolved naturally over the through the 80s and into the 90s and became the superstar that he is. So it just felt like Zool was trying too hard to catch up. Um, the console gamers and the console magazines were much more used to these platform games. So it, it rated a lot lower when it was ported to those platforms. Games Master gave it a 70% on the Mega Drive. Super Gamer, 85% on the Game Boy. Um, any game that moves that quickly on the Game Boy is going to be pretty painful on oh that Oh my screen. gosh, but I can't even imagine the blurring that was <laughs> rated yeah. well. And I, I think about 85% is a pretty fair score for the game overall. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't breaking new ground, it wasn't ahead of its class, but it was a nice demonstration of what other platforms were capable of doing when they tried to do a Sonic or a Mario. So, not a bad game. Now, imagine my surprise then when this story was submitted this week by user Starcade2084 uh, and it's the story of Zool being exhumed. Studio Sumo Digital has announced Zool Redimensioned. Remember, he's the, the ninja from the nth dimension, yes. so that's where the tagline comes <laughs> from. 
It's all redimensioned. There's already a listing for this on Steam where you can see a video of it in action and screenshots of the game and a release date of August. So it should be here with us any day now, if that's to be believed. It promises 28 levels of retro gaming action, all the boss battles and mini games of the original game. The more I watch the the video, the more I just see the original game. Uh, I'm not seeing too many extras here. Mm -hmm. The main extra that you'll see... Um, is that it's more zoomed out so it's like a hd remake if you like they've zoomed out all of those tiles and those sprites to keep them looking nice on a modern screen uh the advantage of that i mean this might play into your hands you were complaining about the cruel traps and the blind jumps well you can see a lot more of the play field now with that hd resolution so that might make it a bit more enjoyable um but then on the flip side if you zoom out you're going to lose speed so is all going to be as quick a game as it was i don't know Mm -hmm. i don't know looks fun though um like i said it doesn't look like it brings too much new uh outside of hd resolution and also steam achievements have been put in there so i don't know collect a hundred chupa chups oh it's probably it's probably not affiliated with them anymore Uh, yeah it it will be i I have a feeling that the chupa chups branding will be carefully removed (laughs) from from all (laughs) yes uh but they're definitely there's no shortage of things to collect in zool (laughs) That is, it yeah, is the so, ultimate and just random stuff lying around that you pick up all the time type of game. Yeah, so I'll be watching your Steam profile with interest, John, to see what you unlock. <laughs> um, for me, it looks like a pocket money game. You know, mm-hmm. release it for £2 and I'll snap it up and I'll play it uh, of an afternoon. Uh, release it for £15 and it's probably going to be a hard no from me. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I I'd say that if this comes in at under 10 bucks, which is, you know, what, around seven pounds, I, I might give it a shot. But any more than that, and you're you're taking a chance on a remake of a game that, let's face it, wasn't hugely great to begin with. Uh, I really hope that they do some work on the actual mechanics of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. It was you know, one of my great disappointments was playing the HD remake of Super Frog, another, you know, Amiga classic platformer and uh it was beautiful very very gorgeous looking game but they didn't change my main complaint with the game which was that you know in most japanese platformers you have variable height jump if you tap the button you jump a little bit and if you lay on the button you jump a lot and that's that sort of is is a a big deal to me you know it gives you a feel of being in control of your character and they didn't, you know, the original Super Frog didn't have that. You hit the button and you jump the same height no matter what. They didn't change that with the re-release of Super Frog HD. And uh, and it, to me, it just, you know, the game was gorgeous, but it still played like that same game from, you know, 1992 or 93, whenever it was released. And I guess maybe if you're a fan of Super Frog, that's what you want. But I, I'm always hopeful that these remakes take advantage of what we've learned and sort of, you know, the advancements in the genre while still giving you the nostalgic hit of playing as, you know, a classic character character like Zool so I don't know Neil couldn't agree more and if there's any creature that can do a variable jump it's got to be a frog right like, that's right that's right it's legs <laughs> one super frog um, it's funny isn't it? It, it the difference between a good platformer and a bad platformer can, can come down to simply a couple of pixels in the arc of the jump is yes. the mechanic is the most important thing of the whole thing absolutely um something else that i've noticed about this game is when i was looking at the small print i could see that it was developed by sumo digital academy uh, and that's the talent development arm of sumo digital which takes in graduates and helps them to get their first steps into the games industry so while a lot of people will have been left scratching their heads saying why the hell have you bought zool back i'd suggest that perhaps this is an exercise in game development and mechanics 
carried out by those fresh new game developers using an existing game to have let's say an achievable target they know what the rules are they know what the the graphics are laid out for them so they know it's completely achievable and they can rapidly create this thing yeah 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 absolutely this is this is the reason why ports were so you know arcade ports and clones were so prevalent back on the 8-bit computer days were because it wasn't because the programmers weren't capable of doing creative work but when you're setting out to make your first game having sort of a roadmap and and having an achievable goal that's already been realized say on another platform uh makes makes programming a game a lot a lot easier i think yeah yeah Uh, Yeah. programmers are really creative types as well so it really Mm -hmm. helps to have all of those creative assets laid out for you as well um so yeah just bear in mind that releasing it on steam it will may well be their first ever commercial game and i'm just taking that from from the small print that i that i've read And, and i hope if that's the case that it brings them enough success to drive their early careers into the Mm -hmm. games industry so good luck to them on that count now you can check out zool redimensioned by searching for it on steam hopefully by the time this show goes out it will be released and we might see the price of it there or you can use the link in the show notes to find out more I'd like to take a quick moment now, John, to say a big thank you to RetroRewind.ca. It's my favourite store for upgrades for my classic computers and my Commodore machines to keep them in top condition. And it's not just parts that Frank and his team offer. He also offers now a very, very high quality recapping service for just $48. And I believe that's 48 Canadian dollars. Mm. Uh, where does that sit with US dollars? What's the conversion rate there? Do you know, John? I, I think 48 Canadian dollars is something like 30 US dollars. So it's oh, very, right. very reasonable. That's even less than I thought it was then. Yeah, very reasonable. Uh, and when you consider how much that C64 or that Amiga means to you, a system that you've cherished for over three decades, we're sending it to get off to get a full recap for under 40 US dollars, as you say that. It, it doesn't seem like a lot of money at all for the joy it brings you and the peace of mind in knowing that you're good to go for another few decades. So check out retrorewind.ca. They really do offer a world-class service And we'd like to thank them very much for supporting the show today. Neil, it's well known that there's a special space reserved in your cave for a secret arcade set to open as soon as you reach that magical goal of 2,000 patrons. On that fateful day, whenever it should arrive, what are going to be the first machines visitors will be greeted with once they pass through that secret bookshelf door? Yes, right behind me, the bookshelf that one day I hope to be able to swing open and reveal the secret arcade. I'm thinking Gauntlet, Robotron, Outrun, uh, Robocop, Rolling Thunder, Spy Hunter, Star Wars, Commando, Ghosts and Goblins. What else have I got to get in there? Track and Field, Marble Madness, all of them, John, all of the video games. Just everything, everything. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that it's it's amazing uh, i hope that one day soon it shall all come to pass uh but for people that are looking to satisfy their arcade urges sooner rather than later i have some exciting news shared by subreddit user paul aka hermsky uh down in bristol neil i've got to be honest with you i don't know anything about bristol what's what's famous what's what's famous in bristol what's bristol famous for you don't know anything about bristle it's gert lush down there john as they say in the west country um bristol is closely associated with the engineer isambard kingdom brunel who you can um, you can see a lot of his work there you've got the clifton suspension bridge he was basically a giant of the industrial revolution uh, with mm. his work on the great western railway and, and so many other projects um 
he built these great uh, iron-hulled steamships. I think they were the first in the world, three of them, uh, with the idea of extending the Great Western Rail Line so you could get off the train, get on one of these steamships uh, and go across the Atlantic to the US. Um, yeah, a real revolutionary thinker at the time, an incredibly talented guy. Um, but probably the most famous thing about Bristol is is where I met Miss RMC for our, uh, our first cup of coffee. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really nice town, town. And I also did a lot of IT support there when I used to look after the shop at Bristol Zoo. Mm. So that was kind of funny, uh, you know, replacing switches and wireless access points with gorillas and, and monkeys just outside the window watching you. <laughs> Always fun. Um, yeah, it's a nice, it's a vibrant university city, a really nice place, Bristol. Not far from here at all. Oh, okay. Well, if you and uh, Ms. RMC want to rekindle the spark and have that, that uh, nostalgic cup of coffee together, I'll tell you what you can do right afterwards. Uh, there's a new <laughs> retro arcade that just opened earlier last month called the Lost Arcade Part 2. Um, according to the article that uh, comes from Bristol Live, it's located in the former Peacock store. What's a Peacock store, Neil? A uh, very low-cost clothing brand. Ah, yeah. okay. Uh, it's located in the former Peacock store on the ground floor of the galleries in Broadmead. And uh, get this, Neil, to access it, you have to pass through what's described as a purple time-traveling portal. Aha! Uh, maybe you need to reconsider that hidden bookshelf door idea, Neil. You need a purple time-traveling portal to access the secret arcade. <laughs> for some reason, it's making me think of Day of the Tentacle for some reason. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I tried to find a picture of this purple portal, and I wasn't able to on the Bristol Live article, but I've, I've seen the building that it's in, and I really do applaud the use of this old retail space in this way, because uh, high streets are just falling apart here in the UK, and it's something we need to come to terms with and accept and, and embrace and fix um it was happening long before the pandemic before brexit before anything else is it was just that shift to the convenience and lower price of shopping online and too many councils around here are just too slow to accept it and, and the future of those empty spaces it needs to be considered now and they all need to be used in new way, ways so top marks to, to bristol for allowing this to happen I've also seen similar things happening in Nottingham. They're doing a really great job over there. So, um, yeah, I would love to step into the Purple Time Travelling Portal and make the trip there. And, and I certainly will because I'm so close to it. So there's no excuse for me not to go down there. A couple of questions for you, though, John. Um, where was part one? Because this is described as um, the Lost Arcade Part 2. The, yeah, I, I, they, they, you know, they make no mention of where the lost arcade part. Maybe the lost arcade ended up getting lost. Maybe that's, <laughs> and they're, they're they're just anticipating that to happen again, and so they're calling this one the lost arcade part two. I don't know. <laughs> and also, uh, I, I've mentioned about the high street here. Are you seeing a similar effect in the U.S.? Are retail spaces collapsing? Oh. Because I always think of the U.S. as as being more these out of town. Um, you know bigger places yeah uh, where you drive your car to rather than a high street that you ambled down. absolutely i think that there are some places that have been sort of purpose-built high streets that are doing pretty well you know obviously covid threw a wrench into everything but 
sort of an open air walkable place that that has a lot of different stores and a lot of different you know eating opportunities uh those places there's the the closest one is in a city called columbus in ohio that's called the easton town center those places tend to do pretty pretty okay but i think that the traditional high street that has you know a main thoroughfare running down the middle of it with shops on the side that, that doesn't offer a lot of of great parking opportunities and uh, maybe the sidewalks are a little bit narrow so even if there are a lot of people you're sort of jostled around those are those are unfortunately uh dying a slow death um of course there are always plans to to turn those things around and sometimes they work but at the end of the day um you know as more and more shoppers go online for what they need uh it's 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 a it's a long road to hoe if you're opening a traditional shop i think you you have to offer something more than just walking in buying something and leaving and i think you know places like these retro arcades that do offer something that you can't you know experience that you can't purchase online that's really the way forward you just described every British town there is, you know, narrow sidewalks, yeah. lack of parking. And the funny thing is the council's response in a lot of these places is to just increase parking prices. <laughs> they just, That'll they bring just them in. Don't get it. <laughs> anyway, let's get back on, on point with this arcade. What has this arcade in Bristol got to offer when I go and step through that portal? Uh, it holds about 100 arcade machines. Uh, so there's, there's 80s classics. You got Pac-Man, you know, all the way up through the the mid 90s according to the article so you know probably tops out of the brown street fighter 2 i think beyond that you end up getting into the larger more purpose-built machines like the snowboard simulator games and things like that that are probably more expensive more you know to, to keep up and also just to own in terms of floor space um i i will say that you know if you're looking for a typical selection of games you're familiar with this is probably the place to go if you're looking for maybe more obscure titles that you might not find in every retro arcade i don't know if this is going to deliver on that this seems like it's it's sort of a you know a shotgun approach where they want to please the, the casual consumer um but you know that there's there's a lot to say for having something like that close to home you know if you're in the bristol area uh the arcade also boasts an exhibit all about the history of consoles and i guess has a hands-on area where you can try a selection of, of home systems Okay, so there are there's, there's home consoles. Are we going to see microcomputers there as well? Do you um, I don't think so. Uh, they, the, the article doesn't mention it, and I'm guessing that it all comes down to ease of use for, your, your, like I said, your casual consumer, your, your person on the street. Uh, even if, it, you know, somebody just, you know, strolling in that's getting ready for a day of shopping grew up with a Commodore 64, uh, they might not remember to type load splat comma eight comma one <laughs> to run a game. It's consoles are plug and play. You know this. You, you, you fire it up, you put in a game, you hit power and you're, you're ready to go. Uh, and let's face it, they're also less prone to, to break down without one morning than, than our favorite retro computers are. But, you know, there may be some classic computing action. And what's described in the article is an immersive exhibition explaining the history of video games and gaming culture. So I don't know what that entails exactly, but it's nice to know that there's more to the place than just a bunch of arcade games set to free play. 
Um, speaking of free play, uh, you're free to linger and play as much as you'd like with the price of a ticket. You can spend the single day, uh, a single day ticket costs nine pounds, or you can buy a season pass. And uh, this season pass runs from now until the end of September. I don't know if the Lost Arcade is going to close down then and, you know, if it's going to reappear as the Lost Arcade 3 somewhere else or what's going on with that. But uh, it's going to cost you 150 pounds. That's that's quite a bit of money, Neil. Um, wh what do you think about that value proposition? Um, well, I'm guessing we're coming towards the end of the season. I don't know how long a season is, how long 150 It, it runs through the end of September. Hmm. Well, nine pounds seems reasonable for a day. Mm -hmm. I'd probably, I'd probably pay nine pound a shot and go and spend a good day there. Take a bit of extra money for a, you know, plate of chips and some burgers or something, some refreshments. Right. But it doesn't sound too bad. One hundred and fifty pounds, I wouldn't pay right now to take me to the end of September because. I would only get down there a couple of times yeah. between now yeah. and then. I guess if you live next, yeah, if you live next door, maybe it's worth it. Now, if you are under 18, they knocked down the price to under uh, only 120 pounds. But I have a feeling that a lot of under 18s are going to have that kind of pocket money to throw at a retro arcade. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, to book a ticket and to enter through the purple time travel tunnel yourself, head on over to historyofvideogames.co.uk. John, what I have here in my hands is a never-before-publicly-seen or explained outside of my uh, Patreon posts, uh, a world's first. Mm. This is the Mr. Multisystem, a prototype 001. Uh, it's got the serial number on the back, 001, which I've been testing out. Um, and what it is, well, what I'll do, actually, I'll, I'll send producer Duncan lots of footage of this in action now. So if you're watching the video, you can see what this is capable of. Um, here the footage should hopefully be on the screen now now many of you will be familiar with the mister project and that's what this taps into it's basically a retro console that can run all of your favorite systems the mister project um it's been around for some time now it covers consoles it covers arcades and it covers uh, classic microcomputers but instead of using software emulation like you have in mame or in RetroPie or many of the other alternatives it uses an fpga chip now what that means is each system is described in great detail in a core and you download the core and when you run that it configures the fpga or field programmable gate array and what that's doing is it's setting all of the logic inside that chip all of the logic units to be exactly like the original hardware it's a, a malleable chip if you like that can take the form of any other chip or chips you can partition it up and make it into all of those original chips in a system so as a result it gives you the most authentic experience that i've personally ever come across when emulating systems in fact i shouldn't use the word emulating because people frown on it if you people get really emulation. upset when you use they the get e really word, upset. yeah so it's the most authentic experience that i've had outside of using the real hardware and of course, it brings you all the convenience that comes with it of things not exploding or dying or <laughs> just getting too old to use. So, um, yeah, you, you really have to try it out to, to feel what I mean. Um, now, there are a few ways that you can get into FPGA gaming. One of them is to just throw money at devices uh, by analog. You'll have seen these beautiful devices like the Analog NT mm -hmm. and all of the other ones that they do. They're quite expensive and they tend to be dedicated to a single system or in the case of their PC engine set up a family of systems. And the other is to use the Mister, which over the years has evolved really quite organically. The, the Mister is where you buy lots of boards and then you kind of create a stack of them to create the kind of Mister experience you want, right? 
yeah that's how it's been so far so you start off with this thing called the d10 nano board that's the board that has the fpga chip on it and you can actually run some cores with just that board and nothing else but to get the most out of it you need uh, extra things on there and that's where you need to start buying ram modules you need to buy a usb hub to add on to it uh, you need to buy an io board to give you vga or scar or composite output or whatever it is that you want to use it for especially if you want to use original monitors this thing is really good with crts and gives you a really good authentic experience so you end up with this stack of boards for a new person who wants to get into this it can be a little bit intimidating um, a bit confusing as to know where to start and it can be quite expensive and that's where the mr multi-system comes into play because what we've created and i say we this has been created right here in the cave there's an electronics company right below my seat right now on the floor below me who i've been working with who are massive retro fans long-term viewers of my channel will remember that when i was looking for a new place to set up the cave it was them who approached me and said we've got some space here and we'd love you to come here that that's how big retro fans they are um so they've developed this and we've been testing it out and so what it is is it's a single board so you don't have to have that big stack of things the d10 snaps onto it and that's it you've got everything you've got 128 meg of ram on board you've got all the usb ports uh both externally and there's internal usb headers so you can put internal expansions in there it's got hdmi output scar rgb scar output vga output optical audio three and a half mil audio out and in so you could feed those old cassette tapes in if you really want to watch tapes load in real time as i know you love so much john uh, every day um, every day i fire up my, my spectrum plus two and just let those tapes load <laughs> <laughs> it accommodates snack adapters some of which i've got on here uh, and these are all the different adapters that let you use original game controllers mm -hmm. so you can plug in your nes controller or whatever uh with a nice low latency so you can plug those in um a whole host of other things which i'll cover in upcoming video but what's important here is that it contains everything that you could possibly need to take those first steps into the the mr world with a single board and this single board that we've made costs less than buying all of those individual boards so you're not paying extra for the convenience it hopefully this is the way i see it it's the perfect first step into the mr world um, and hopefully a no-brainer that's the plan anyway um yeah but but wait john there's more <laughs> my, my favorite bit my favorite bit of this whole system is that we've put an expansion port at the front and um what this allows you to do is expand it even further so an example of an add-on that we've created for it is a, a jammer harness that you just snap onto the front and then you can plug it directly into an arcade machine oh fantastic and the video output and the controllers and everything will just work um <clears throat> we've worked on a snap-on pi mt32 add-on so you can snap a pi on there and it will emulate the mt32 um audio device from roland mm -hmm. and you could use that with the pc core and play monkey island with lovely midi music and all of that stuff so yeah it's a really nice system it's come together really well we're currently in the beta testing stage so we've got we've got about 10 units out there at the moment being tested here and externally and um, it should come to market in October, all things going well. Um, we've also created a reference design case, which we've 3D printed. So you've seen that in the one that I've held up. Um, if you're not watching the video, I would describe it as being sort of an evolution of the PC Engine kind of style case. Uh, it's got a real 90s feel to it. 
and we're going to make the 3D printer files freely available to everyone so that they can print their own. Uh, just right now on the 3D printer, uh, I can't wait to show you this, is a, a global hypercolor case, which is 3D printing. Fancy. So it changes color with the temperature, wow. three different colors. Now, what that will do is it will allow us to show you the airflow because a few people have said, is it going to get too hot in there? Well, if we can show you the heat in terms of the color on the case, you'll see the airflow that where it goes right across the middle of the case and keeps everything cool. So um, we've been having a lot of fun with it. As you can tell, it's produced in the UK um, and it's not me sat in a corner hand soldering these things. We can produce 15,000 of these a month if wow. we want to, John, using the connections that Heber, the electronics company, have. So it's a real professional um, job here that they've done. I'm not expecting to sell 15,000 a month. I mean, I'll be driving a Ferrari next <laughs> month if, if that's the case. But I'm just trying to drive home the point that I'm not hand soldering these. So um, fingers crossed. Every board will have a two years uh, warranty, such as our confidence in the quality of this thing. And uh, I can't wait to get it to market. And I've been itching to tell everyone about it for ages. So hopefully between what I've described and any footage that Duncan's been able to show you, um, you you've got the idea of what this thing's capable of. Uh, John, that's my Dragon's Den pitch. Based on your mystery experiences, are you on board with this thing? <laughs> well, you know, I've been the proud owner of a mister for about six months now. Um, I got on board uh, earlier this year. And uh, let me just say this. Uh, if you don't know what a mister is, it's fantastic. Um, it, you know, if you can, if you can bring the mister experience home and i mean the experience of being able to easily simulate and switch between multiple classic computers and consoles in a way that's not it's just not possible through traditional pc and ras or raspberry pi emulation um if you can bring that experience to even more people uh maybe people that were scared off by the initial investment and the construction of the board with all the bits and bobs um godspeed to you and your team neil uh, i can't wait to see this thing in action yeah, I can't wait to see it in people's hands. I must try and get a board over to you, John. Oh, I'd really love it. I'd love to try it out. Haven't you? So I see what I can arrange for you as a US beta tester, perhaps. Um, but we, we've got lots of impartial reviews lined up with some big channels. So people will be able to see what this is capable of without me waving my arms around like Stan in Monkey <laughs> Island, the, the salesman. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing other people's opinions of this. But I'm pretty confident that we've got a very good thing here, uh, a very good thing for the community, for the Mr. Community, because the more people could get involved, then, then the better. Um, yeah, looking forward to getting it out there. So if you'd like to find out more, keep an eye on my YouTube channel where um, I'll get some previews out in the coming weeks. We'll give you in, an insight into some of the things that the beta testers are testing it out on. I know one in particular is trying it out with a NES Zapper mm -hmm. to see how accurate this thing is in terms of the timing with the light guns. Mm -hmm. That'd be a great test. And we're, we're really going to test this thing to destruction. Um, and we'll show you lots of the really cool extras that we're working on. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited. Can you tell, John? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen you this ecstatic about anything, Neil. <laughs> Neil. Last week's community question of the week was, what classic game would you like to see in Tate mode? Of Tate, course, not Tate. Yeah, not Tate. <laughs> Tate. <laughs> and uh, for those of you not up on your Japanese arcade terminology, this just means portrait mode. Uh, swinging your, your monitor up and around so you're playing the games in a vertical orientation. And uh, the topmost upvoted response comes from our own producer, Duncan Styles. 
He says, you mentioned the Amiga's pinball games in Tate mode, and I seem to remember that the versions available for the PSP allowed you to rotate the game 90 degrees. So uh, that's that's something that I wasn't aware of. I guess that I at least, have, you know, one of the pinball dreams, fantasies, etc., were released for the PSP, and you kind of get this already. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, because by the PSP era, we're into widescreen aspect ratio. Right. So you've got a nice long screen when you turn it sideways. Right, yeah. and being a portable system, it's not difficult to uh, convert it into portrait orientation. Um, he says games like Pang could benefit from more vertical space. I agree about that. Then he asks a question. He says, would you keep the sprites the same size and sacrifice horizontal space or reduce sprite size to keep the level the same width? What do you think about that, Neil? Hmm, good question. I would probably keep everything proportional, so I would reduce the sprite size, I yeah, think. I think that's the way to go. Um, Sheepy Tina says Ice Climber for similar reasons to Rainbow Islands. It's a vertical platformer with no horizontal scrolling. Yeah, Ice Climber is a great, a great. And, and speaking of games that need a control update, uh, I would love to see a new version of Ice Climber that actually controls well. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah, good choice. And nice to hear from Tina. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, Starcade2084 says, uh, every console pinball game immediately came to mind from Sonic Spinball to Kiss Pinball. But what about a light gun game? Duck mode or <laughs> duck mode. Duck hunt in Tate duck mode <laughs> would allow for the ducks to fly higher and further away if there was more vertical space on the screen. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, and he also mentions elevator action. He says even the arcade version was in standard mode. Tate mode would allow for seeing more of the floors below, allowing Agent 17 to better plan his escape. To me, that's the number one answer right there. I'd forgotten that the arcade version of elevator action was in you know four by three standard mode so a Tate version would be great well my mind's wondering now i'm just thinking about games in duck mode <laughs> <laughs> just just a picture of the the annoying goose game ported to everything and that's that, that's duck mode this week's community question of the week is what would it take for you to buy a commodore smartphone uh, please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week i got a feeling the top response is going to be a suitcase full of cash <laughs> <laughs> are they giving these away then i might be in <laughs> This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.